Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is a book person. Here she is to introduce herself. My name is Michelle Sisa, and I'm a journalist and a book critic, and I live in Vancouver with my family and my cat, uh, where I read a lot of books and sometimes write about them. In my conversation with Michelle, we talk about the joy of reading and what does it mean when we talk about great novels. Here's my conversation with Michelle Sisa. I ask a silly icebreaker question, and it is, if you could read only one book or watch only one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? Oh, that's really tough. I mean, this is pretty embarrassing, but the TV show I rewatch most often is Gilmore Girls. It's just like very soothing background TV and incredibly low stress, like nothing bad really happens ever. The beats are very predictable. I feel like we're living in a real golden era of like high stress television Mm -hmm. and a lot of shows I watch and I really like, and I'm like, I never want to see that again. So I'm really into this like ambient soothing TV at this moment in my life. Yeah. Did you see um, that Zoe Whittle is going to be writing uh, a book for ECW's pop culture series on Gilmore Girls? No, that's very exciting. I saw the deal online yesterday and it was like, yes, this is great news. (laughs) Ooh, I can't wait for that. I'm very excited for her book, um, her next book, The Fake, which seems like it might also have a little TV bent because the synopsis I read sounded very similar to the Grey's Anatomy writer who lied about having cancer and like conned a bunch of people. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, I, I look forward to any book. Zoe Whittell book. Same here. Yeah. You mentioned that you are a journalist and a book critic. And one of the things I know you have done is you did a little series for the Taiyi about book people. And I, I would describe you as a book person, but I'm curious what interests you about other book people. Well, the series I did for the Taiyi actually came out of a... Uh, a newsletter that I wrote for a year on Substack that was also called Book Person that was kind of a questionnaire style newsletter where I would just ask people who were avid readers about their favorite books with all these different kind of questions. It was like the Prost questionnaire, but just about favorite books. And it was really, really fun. And then I thought it would be cool to do a version of that that was just with BC authors. Because I'm always interested when you read a book what the author was, you know, reading or thinking about who their influences were when they were writing it. And I also feel like a lot of authors have very, you know, like surprising and interesting tastes in books, and it's always fun to dig into them. So I had the opportunity to ask a lot of really amazing authors like Eden Robinson, who has great taste in books, uh, or Ethan Liu, who's also an incredible journalist. Um, He's now the business opinion editor for the Globe and Mail. And he had like very surprisingly wide ranging tastes in books, like very eclectic 
and very non-snobby, like you would find a Stephen King book in his apartment lobby and read it. And that's just the kind of detail I find really enjoyable to learn about someone. Yeah. Where do your, how do you put together your to read pile? I mean, I know as a book critic, there are workbooks and then there are probably pleasure books, but um, how do you sort that out? For me, the workbooks and the pleasure books are often overlapping in a Venn diagram. Like I review and critique a lot of books by Indigenous authors in Canada, which is what I would like to read anyway. So my most recent author profile was the amazing Jessica Johns uh, for Cool Inquire because she has a great new novel out called Bad Cree. And that's the kind of thing I would have been really excited to read, even if I wasn't going to write about it. I tend to read... Let's see. I would say lately, similar to the favorite TV show, I'm sort of off books that seem incredibly traumatic. I feel like it's been a heavy couple of years. And so I'm interested in narratives that are like dark, but maybe have a comedic edge or something that kind of takes the sting out. Like I'll never read A Little Life again. And frankly, I don't really think anyone should read it. But in my in my personal reading... I like a good plot-driven novel, like strong characterization. I like kind of weird, surreal elements in fiction. Like it doesn't have to be full-on magical realism, but I like a very strange narrative that takes you to some unexpected places. So I would say I, I do read for plot and also structure. Most recent, The most recent book I read that I just finished last night is The Pisces by Melissa Broder, which... A friend gave to me and said, this book kind of has Shape of Water vibes. And I love that immediately I knew that she meant it was a book, but a woman and a fish having sex. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. You can. People have. Oh, yeah. They will in the future, I'm sure. Yeah. So it's a fish fucking book. And I was like, great. Sounds fun. And it was. I read Milk Fed um, by, I haven't read Pisces, but. Both very horny books, which is great. Yeah, and I was I was deeply challenged by Milk Fed because it, uh, you know, as a fat person who's dealt with like calorie counting, it was like a hard thing to read. But I, in the end, quite enjoyed it. Yeah, it's definitely a book that really foregrounds a lot of like compulsive dieting and calorie counting behaviors that I also found challenging to read about. But a very expansive and beautiful book and very sensual. Yeah. I mean, there's a boob on the front, so you can't go wrong with that. You know what you're getting into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have you always been a book person? Yes, I was really raised in a book family. My mom uh, taught English and literature at Capilano University for her entire career. She and my dad were both big readers. And so I really grew up in a house where there were books everywhere. And I could kind of read whatever I wanted. Like there was no restriction of my browsing habits. I remember reading like some very age inappropriate Harlan Ellison like horror stories when I was a kid (laughs) and lots of like Greek mythology, which is often recommended to kids, but is like pretty dark uh, and pretty incestuous. But yeah, I love to read always. And when we took family road trips, which we did most summers, uh, like me and my siblings would all be piled in the back and we would just read for the entire journey when we weren't like pulling each other's hair and I'm still very grateful that I'm someone who can read on buses in transit pretty much anywhere I have been caught by my husband like reading while walking which is not particularly safe but (laughs) 
I just love it. My dad has a story about me going to a baseball game with my brothers and reading a book and being so absorbed that I didn't notice that a foul ball was like flying towards me and would have hit me in the head if someone hadn't <laughs> stood up and caught it. That's that's, great. that's pretty much my lifelong approach to reading. I am jealous that you can read in a car or a bus because I was the child who was horribly motion sick and so I couldn't do any of those things but I always got to sit in the front seat which to this day my sister is like still sour about oh man I wasn't allowed to sit in the front seat till I was like 16 my mom had this idea that it was unsafe <laughs> I was well, so it was jealous either sit in the back and like risk throwing up on people or like sit in the front seat and we get to carry on that's a silver lining yeah now I don't want to talk. I I was trying to figure out how to bring this up because I don't want to mention his name, but you and I were engaging on Twitter uh, over something recently about uh, all we need to say is great novels being uh, inspired and set in Vancouver. Um, and obviously the most wonderful thing that came out of this was the long reading list that we all have of not only wonderful novels uh, set in Vancouver, but wonderful nonfiction, wonderful poetry, short stories. But I've been thinking about this statement, and I think what has, uh, I've kind of been percolating on it, and I should really just let it go because let's not give him more airtime than he needs. But it it reminds me that there's still a sense on the coast and extending into Yukon, that uh, the literary community and all things important in culture are still centered in Vancouver. And I wonder mm. what your feelings are on that. And how do we how do we confront this assumption? And, and it's interesting because I talk to people and they're always like, well, no, it's not true. Like 20 percent of all like English speaking publication or publishers are on the coast. So it's it's factually incorrect but somehow we still like in i think in in some of us in the coast and also obviously some people in ontario uh still kind of think of themselves as the hub yeah which is surprising i mean i feel like there's hubs everywhere like edmonton has an incredible literary hub no one would ever cast aspersions at montreal but obviously we all know they have a great literary history you know there's amazing authors on Vancouver Island and on the Gulf Islands, who've set great works of fiction and nonfiction there. And uh, it is a weird kind of Canadian insecurity. And sometimes I think, too, there's this, like, underlying snobbery about the conditions that are required to, like, be an artist and make great art, you know, that you have to be in, like, the right kind of city, surrounded by the right kind of people, with, like, the right influences in history around you. It feels kind of like a reflection of the term great novel, which has associations for people of like, you know, Ernest Hemingway, like neglecting his family to drink and write, like something that can only be accomplished by a certain kind of great white man with a drinking problem. And that that's the kind of snobbery that I think could be really self-limiting for people too, like that you have to create a book that fits into a certain kind of literary milieu or that is like produced under these specific conditions. And it erases the fact that people write great books everywhere with all kinds of backgrounds in all kinds of genres. Like I also, I mean, I think a lot of the books that I saw people respond with and, and some of the ones I was thinking of would be classified as like genre fiction in some ways. And that often gets a bad rap, like that something can't be a great novel unless it's a literary novel. And I just think that's 
really narrow and kind of tiresome. <laughs> and it, it makes people think they can't make great art or that they can't call what they do great art because they're not doing it in this like one specific mold that we've just assumed is the best and the most significant for so long. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I think there's also this idea for writers that, you know, I, I write nonfiction and I've been told like, if you write certain stories about places in Canada, American markets don't care. And that's like, and I think that extends to fiction as well. And like, I know, I remember hearing Sam Weeb talk about his uh, mystery series, which is of course set in the lower mainland. And I think at one point he was kind of told by an editor, you know, you should really think about setting it in like Los Angeles or Seattle. And he was like, but I can't write about all the things I want to write about if it's set in Los Angeles or Seattle. Like part of what he wanted to do was discuss the like gentrification and poverty and housing issues in Vancouver and, you know, the gang issues in Vancouver. And so you can't do that if you start moving everything and it's kind of like how in hollywood all all movies were like set in new york for a long time and it's like well, yeah. what about the rest of the world yeah and those are kind of the conditions that are like interesting to explore in fiction because you're you can take a certain set of circumstances and historical precedents and interrogate it a little bit i mean i feel like it's true a lot of the canadian fiction that people outside of canada seem most familiar with is like stories set in this kind of wilderness era or like you know a long time ago where it's kind of this like rudimentary idea of Canada and Canadian wilderness that's not too challenging whereas you know it's like how movies that are filmed in Vancouver or Toronto are always actually set in like Seattle or New York because it would be too confusing for an audience I guess to see like Canadian currency on screen or something I think that kind of erasure like it leads to sameness and in fiction, which is not a terribly exciting thing if, if everyone's kind of templating their stories on what's worked previously. And it means you would never have a novel, you know, like Junie by Shalene Knight, which is set in Hogan's Alley, which is like a part of Vancouver history that a lot of people don't know about that deserves to be interrogated and, and explored in fiction. And that like wouldn't make sense if it was set anywhere else in the world, because that's a really specific context. But I also think, like, maybe we just need to not focus. This is easy for me to say as someone who's not trying to sell a fiction book. But the idea of trying to appeal to, like, a specific segment of audiences or, like, this idea of an American reader seems like it's self-defeating. Because often the books that become successful or that people get really excited about, like, it seems kind of unpredictable. Besides, if they have great writing and great characters, everything else is kind of a wild card. I mean... Milk Fed is a pretty weird book and a lot of people love it. And like, it's hard to imagine someone selling that as a commercial proposition. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's so interesting to me that, I mean, I think, I wish that readers were just, I, and maybe this is a publishing thing too, but I think a lot, I pe think people have more expansive reading tastes than we give them credit for. But unfortunately, yeah. I think people are marketed to in a certain way. Um, like, I think, you know, people who read with Reese Witherspoon book club books, you know, they enjoy that. But maybe they would also enjoy, like, Junie. Like, but there's this idea that somehow those are different readers and that they don't like the same things. And I think that we don't always give readers the credit they're due uh, for having wide tastes. 
Yeah. And I think that that does have a lot to do with how books are marketed and labeled, like even the label of women's fiction for the kinds of things that... Chiclet? I hate that. Yeah. (laughs) But I I mean, I do. I agree that I think readers have broader tastes than maybe like marketing algorithms ever consider, you know, like Jessica John's Bad Cree, which I mentioned before, is a national bestseller right now. And that book is like about a very, very specific experience that's really culturally rooted in in a Cree family from Treaty 8. You know, it's a book that grapples with colonialism and its impact in rural Alberta. Um, it's a book that, again, wouldn't make sense in an American context or a context that's divorced from that specific place and culture. And it really works because it's a great novel and it is like spooky and thrilling and mysterious and those are elements that people get excited about. Like, I think the idea that people want to be marketed the same thing over and over or have every book sold to them as like Gone Girl meets, you know, whatever, whatever you can crossbreed Gone Girl with. <laughs> I think that's kind of tiresome. Yeah. yeah. For readers and for writers. Yeah. What excites you about books being published and written in BC and Yukon? I'm so excited by the number of great Indigenous authors that are publishing and publishing books that I think there wasn't really a receptive appetite in the publishing industry for even like 10 or 15 years ago for both like interesting genre fiction, like the way that someone like Eden Robinson can write these books that, you know, have elements of like horror and and also like are really rooted in YA and kind of like sci-fi or you know, Alicia Elliott is working on a, I think we can claim her as a BC author because I believe she's faculty at UBC, but she's releasing a fiction book that sounds kind of like, you know, an Indigenous take on Get Out, which sounds yeah. amazing. And and I just, I feel like, you know, there's there's room for all these different explorations of like who gets to be a BC author, what gets to be the BC experience beyond, you know, what people are familiar with and what they expect. And I love that. And I love seeing authors with BC connections really make it on a international stage as well. I mean, I feel like Emily St. John Mandel is maybe like the most visible example of that. Lately, she writes these books that are always really rooted in her experience growing up on Denman Island and being from, you know, the West Coast. And those really resonate with readers all over the world. But they also resonate if you're a BC reader and you read them and you recognize these like really beautiful places that she's talking about so that's fun I just feel like there's such a diversity of fiction coming out that you can find like all kinds of different voices and stories right now yeah I I was I I probably knew this but a few years ago I was surprised I had never heard that Sylvia Moreno Garcia is a Vancouver writer yeah I don't think a lot of people know that no yeah I think she might also teach at UBC I'm not sure She's written something for them. I've seen yeah. her her byline on one of their stories on their website. Um, but yeah, that's really exciting. Her books are amazing. Yeah, no book is the same. That's what, like, you could pick up, like, Mexican Gothic and then Velvet is the Night, and they are entirely different styles, yeah. and it, they're so exciting to read. Yes, I love... I love when authors like can play in different genres too. Like, again, that's just, it's so fun when someone doesn't have to be pigeonholed into writing the same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like she could do a different genre for every book and it would, yeah, be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 
And let's hope she does. Yes. Let's see the next book. Yes. I'm, I'm there for like a really juicy romance. I was just wondering, I put this out on Twitter, when like an Indigenous author is going to write like a rom-com yes. or a romance. I feel like we're ready. Yeah. You know, Billy Ray Belcourt, who I'm also claiming is a BC author because he lives here. He has a book coming out next year. Um, it's, you know, he's done fiction now and nonfiction and memoir. And I think he might be coming out with an essay collection. And I just feel like, again, he's someone who could do anything. And I'm like, maybe he wants to go rom-com next time. Like a yeah. nice, sexy rom-com. Billy Ray Belcourt. Yeah, we want a sexy rom-com, Billy Ray Belcourt. Yeah, let's try it. Yeah. You talked about reading a lot as a kid. And I'm always curious about this because I've also talked to, uh, I used to work at a library and I've talked to teachers and they say one of the challenges is uh, because of how we teach reading, it's easy to lose the joy of reading. Um, and I wonder what you do to inspire the joy of reading in those close to you. Uh, I know you have a little person in your house and uh, I'm sure you read with them, but how do you like spread the joy of reading with your friends, your family, your community? I mean, the most obvious way I do it is by trying to like foist books that I love on everybody which has a selfish angle to it because I, I frequently run out of space in my house for books. And so I have to give some away, but I love sharing books that I've really enjoyed recently and seeing other friends like react to them the same way is, or have totally different reactions. is really fun. Uh, and I'm in a book club. I'm actually in two book clubs, which are just like delightful ways to sort of read books that you wouldn't necessarily have chosen yourself and then have the opportunity to talk about them with people. Like I feel like reading is in a lot of ways, a really social activity. Um, and it's definitely social in my house because I spend a good chunk of my day reading books to my daughter, um, who's three and a half. So, you know, she's not getting any sexy rom-coms yet, but maybe someday. But yeah. I'm, I guess I'm not really sure how reading is taught. Like, do kids just, I do remember reading a lot of books that just seemed like really awful and hard to plow through in school that definitely did not inspire a love of reading. But, but I wonder if things have changed at all or if there's like from what more I freedom saw, in that curriculum. It's been a few years since I, I worked at the library, but from what I saw, I, I saw a lot of teens reading the same books that I read in, in <laughs> high school and probably like the same copies that people my age were reading in high school. But yeah. it seems like still a lot of like um, outsiders and uh, of mice and men and, you know, all of those ones. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, and I, I, I think there's like varied reasons for that. Like um, one is probably just budget. Like it's expensive to buy new piles of class sets of books. Um, so to discard them, there's still the idea that these are classics and therefore must be taught, which I have all sorts of opinions about. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's also just that there's like that you have to that everyone must read the same book. And must yeah. kind of achieve certain benchmarks with it too, like write essay and finish this chapter this week, and that, like all those sorts of things. Kind of, it takes away from what reading should really be. And um, 
I've, I've seen people writing about this lately too with like the book challenges that happen and how you know maybe we should all just savor books more instead of rushing to get through them to get numbers I was that person for a few years but I've been trying to linger now yeah there's a there's an interesting thing to the like gamification of every aspect of our lives including reading that seems more geared towards consumption right I mean Goodreads is the tool that so many people use to track their reading that has a lot of these reading challenges and it's useful to remember that it's owned by Amazon Amazon. (laughs) whose primary purpose is to sell you everything now but originally books yeah that that's a bit like that's always a bit uncomfortable to consider books as objects there's this like really funny story that went a little bit viral a while ago about I think it was Ashley Tisdale it was like some actress who gave a, a tour of her home and talked about how she'd like hired someone to buy books for her shelves like she didn't read them she just bought them to like fill up the space in an aesthetically pleasing way that people really seized on (laughs) but in a way I was like well that's not so different from really what we're being encouraged to do when there's like you know the idea of consuming books by volume and and yeah I think I mean everybody reads differently everybody like moves through books at a different pace I tend to be a really speedy reader which was great when I was a kid and my brother and sister and I would sometimes have like one copy of a book that we were sharing. So everybody had to read efficiently to avoid pissing off the other two, but it's, it really should be about pleasure. I think, I think that element is underplayed when we do teach reading and there's such a focus on like, you know, teaching kids to identify elements of like plot or characterization or themes as opposed to like how a book makes you feel. And I think different ways of teaching that like it struck me as so strange in high school that we all learned Shakespeare by like reading Shakespeare plays which is not a great way to get a sense of like the humor or the fluidity of the dialogue um a lot of books are like really pleasurable if you can hear them spoken especially one that can be challenging to read because of the language or the you know like Faulkner is like a hard author to read sometimes but Incredible if you can listen to an audiobook because, like, he was really thinking about the rhythm of his sentences. I don't know if they're still assigning Faulkner in school, but I read him in English class and had a hard time with it. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, too. Like, I think we're still figuring out how audiobooks fit into everything. Like, you know, there are still people that don't consider an audiobook reading, which is like, ludicrous because our brains process it in the exact same way and not to mention it's extremely ableist but like um you know i i've been thinking as someone who also i review books too i'm like what would it be like to get like a review copy of a book as an audiobook oh yeah that's never an option is it no and i guess that's partly the way the book industry works too is you know the resources invested in an audiobook usually come probably after the publisher decides it's going to sell an adequate number of copies but that would be nice to have that option I also love I mean I just love hearing authors read from their work I'm not a big audiobook person I'm someone who definitely processes information by reading it like if given the choice between a 10,000 word article and like a five minute video I would read the article I would get more out of it but I I love like when authors do readings and you hear the story come alive in a different way in their voice. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I rely on audiobooks because there's often things like I knit a lot. So I'm like, oh, I'll put an audiobook on and I'll knit. Um, so yeah. that's how I, I listen to audiobooks. I got really into the habit of, this is a disgusting habit, but I read a lot of books on my phone. Like it's one of the primary ways I consume books now. I get them through Libby, which is an incredible app. And when I had a newborn and I was spending like 10 hours a day holding her, it was really hard to do anything. Like I didn't want to make any noise in case she woke up and I couldn't really move. And so I just like would read novels on my phone for like hours and hours every day. Sometimes like in the dark, I would read like a whole novel overnight. It was pretty wild. And then I just got into that habit and now I still read books on my phone. Like if I'm on the bus or (laughs) if I'm trying to like sneakily read while my daughter's doing Lego. So (laughs) everybody just has to find what works for them. Like I would never recommend that to anybody. And sometimes I just like see people look so horrified when I say that I've read like a 700 page novel on my phone, (laughs) but it works for me. And, you know, I'm going to have another baby in a couple months and I'm just like gearing up to spend a lot more time just ruining my eyesight by peering at my phone. Are you like making a list of the books that you'll read uh, when the new baby comes and you have are in a chair and just staring at your phone? I'm trying to set some aside because I feel like that was a time where I wanted to read things that like had enough sort of steady plot propulsion that I could read them while sleep deprived. Um, like I read a lot of ton of French, uh, and her like Dublin murder squad books. Those were great, pretty dark to read, frankly, if you're like (laughs) really hormonal, but, but they really worked for me. I read the whole crazy rich Asians series. That was fantastic. Like you want something that like keeps, keeps you moving, keeps you awake. So I've been curious of the, of Anne Cleves mysteries. Have you read any Anne Cleves? No. I've heard they're great. And I love the the TV versions of her books, but I've never read them. Ooh, I just, I do love a mystery. So many people recommended Sam Weeb in that thread of Vancouver books. I feel like maybe I'm going to, and I also like when there's, when there's kind of a series that if you're enjoying something, you can just keep going. So I'm thinking I'm going to save some of his books for that postpartum (laughs) reading sprint. (laughs) I also like uh, Nathan Ripley mysteries too, who of course is Nabe and Rhythm. That's his. Oh partner. yeah, yeah, and writes mysteries. Yeah, yeah. Lots of great. These mysteries. are both good, both good examples yeah. of books. I'm going to save for that period, and then maybe I can write some really sleep deprived reviews. <laughs> Do you have anything you would like to share about what you're working on? Uh, are you working on? I know you're a journalist, but are you working on anything exciting that you want to promote? Ooh, um, I don't have anything specific to plug or concrete, but some two of my friends who are also avid book enthusiasts and I formed a little collective called the Friend Public Library, and we hosted a really fun event in December uh, with a local Vancouver bookstore called Upstart and Crow where we did an evening of cocktail pairings and book recommendations. Mm-hmm. So you could come in looking for like a specific mood or genre. And we had kind of a menu, a tasting menu of books um, and cocktail pairings. And it was really fun. So we're planning to do another event with them in March or April that will have a similar theme. Um, it was like a two night event and it was really, really fun to see people come in 
who were very interested in just like browsing the books we'd selected and talking about books with each other and like really bonding over things that they're reading or wanted to read. It was really that like socializing of the reading experience that I love. So hopefully I'll have another friend public library collaboration to announce soon. That was Michelle Sisa. Michelle is a journalist and book critic. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing a Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Rebecca Wood Barrett, the Artistic and Executive Director of the Whistler Writers Festival. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.